Well, good morning, church. So glad to see each of you this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 13. Uh, before we get started, I have another announcement. Uh, many of you know Howard Smith passed away uh, last week, and so we uh, will be having his funeral service here at the church at Kernan uh, Thursday. The visitation will be at 2 p.m., uh, the service will be at 3 p.m., and then the burial at National Cemetery will follow Friday uh, at 12 p.m. So um, the family wanted me to let you all know um, that that will be happening this Thursday. Please keep them in your prayers, uh, the Howard Smith family. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 13 this morning as we continue our series, Rescued and Redeemed. We've been looking at this grand epic story of how God rescued the Israelites from slavery in ancient Egypt and has redeemed them, has purchased them to be his own people. And what does that mean moving forward? Well, let me pray for us and then we will dive right in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for bringing us together today. We thank you for your word. Lord, this is your word. It's not man's word. It's not my word. It's not anyone else's. And so because it is yours, that means it has authority. It means it has power. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit and these words with power deep into our hearts. Transform our thinking about who you are, about how we live our lives. As we look at this ancient story today, we see your hand working. Then let us see how you work now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week we saw Israel as a newly freed people take their first steps into this new life. It was kind of like the first baby steps as in their spiritual lives, their first steps after being rescued from their slavery, and now they are living this new life, following as God's people, and we saw how God began to teach them what it will look like to follow him in this new life. So just as a father will instruct their child in the ways of how to live a good life in this world and teach them baby steps, one little thing at a time, we see God's fatherly care teaching and walking with his people, leading them into this newfound freedom, this newfound life. So today we are going to pick up where we left off with Israel still fleeing out of Egypt. They're on the move, right? You've got about 2 million people. That's, about, that's a rough estimate of about how many people are actually moving out of Egypt now in this great exodus, but they are going to encounter their first major obstacle in this new life as we'll see today, this first big test of faith after their rescue. So we're picking up in chapter 13, verses 20 through 22 to begin, and we're going to kind of skip down a little bit as we go for sake of time. We're going to hit the highlights of this grand story today, which many of you are probably familiar with. Exodus chapter 13, verse 20. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. 
The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So this had to be an amazing sight, right? I mean, just imagine. Can you imagine being with two million of your closest friends, leaving 430 years of slavery to this ancient, evil, wicked empire, and they're walking, they're leading out, and God himself is manifesting his presence in this great pillar of cloud by day, this great pillar of fire by night. This is God showing that he is with them. He is present. He is leading them. What an amazing sight for the people to behold, to follow. Look at chapter 14. We'll start in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. In front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness, has, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So God is telling Moses, listen, I have a plan. I have a plan, Moses. I'm not going to tell you exactly what's going to happen here, but there is a plan, and it's going to be scary at moments. This isn't going to be easy, but there will be a victory. Let's keep reading verse 5. When the king of Egypt, Pharaoh himself, was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. Remember, it was changed because after God struck the firstborn of Egypt dead and Pharaoh's own firstborn was a recipient of God's judgment on the nation for their wickedness, Pharaoh said, okay, get out of here. You can leave. That's enough. Please leave. But it didn't take long, did it, for Pharaoh to change his mind once again. So his mind was changed toward the people and they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. Pharaoh realizes, I've just lost a, probably a, at least a million people of my workforce. How am I supposed to build these great structures? How are we supposed to continue as the mightiest empire in the world without this force of labor? So he gets his army ready. And they set out to capture the Israelites so they can re-enslave them. Look down to verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. These people are thinking, hey Moses, you promised us a, a five-star resort. Man, and this is like, what is this? Right? I mean, this is you're, you're leading us out here just to die? They had great hopes and now they see the enemy is approaching and they panic. Now these are the same people who had just seen God perform 10 mighty acts of judgment on their enemy 
and set them free from slavery and is physically present with them in the pillar of cloud and fire. So why in the world would they not have faith now that the Lord would continue to lead them through this? What more assurance do they really need? Look at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. In other words, Moses is saying, listen, y'all need to just calm down and shut up. That's essentially what he's saying. The Lord is going to fight for you. Do you not see that he is present? He is with us? Moses shows his faith as their leader. And he charges them to have faith and trust God who will win the battle for them. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. There's all the assurance they need right there. You can take God at his word. Now, watch the Lord fight for his people. Ready for this? I'm going to read a lengthy section here, but this is too good not to cover. All right? Verse 19, we're going to go down to verse 31. This is one of the most epic uh, episodes in the whole Bible. Here we go. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel 
walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Maybe you could call this the 11th plague. The 11th act of judgment, the final one. Pharaoh thought that he could change his mind, that he could change the course of history. That he could recapture these people and re-enslave them. But the one who has been set free is free indeed. God will not have it. These people belong to him. The powers of evil cannot recapture them. They cannot bring them in. But the people, we see this amazing act of God, but look at, look at Israel's emotions as they go through this. They come out of Egypt joyful, happy, with faith. But as soon as they see the Egyptians pursuing them, what do they do? They cower down in fear. As soon as this problem presents itself, as this great epic trial is before them, they immediately panic. They get afraid. They start exaggerating the problem. They start blaming Moses and questioning his leadership. They start questioning God's goodness for them. How can they move so quickly from faith to fear? You know, I don't think we're very different than them. I think we struggle with that too. I think when we're presented with a trial in life, it's so easy for us to, you know, it's easy for us to have faith when our lives seem to be going relatively well. But as soon as a problem presents itself in front of us, what do we do? So often, are we not like the Israelites? We cower down in fear. We start exaggerating the issue. We start blaming others for our problem. We start counting all the reasons that we should have fear instead of faith. But what I want to ask you today is when facing life's trials, how can we choose faith over fear? That's the question I want us to ask as we look at this story, focusing not so much on the lack of faith of the Israelites, but on the consistent faithfulness of God. And how our faith is not rooted in our emotion, it's rooted in who He is and what He does. That's what we must see in this great story of the Red Sea crossing. How can we choose faith over fear? Well, the first thing I think we see here is, number one, trust God's purpose and leading. Trust that he knows what he's doing. Look at verse 18 again of chapter 13. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Who's doing the leading? God is the one who is charting out this course. He's the one who's got the GPS he is telling them where they need to go. He is leading them exactly to this spot where they will be attacked by the Egyptians. God is leading them to that. And verse 21 says, the Lord went before them to lead them. They're following him. We have to realize it was God that led them to this difficult place, to that obstacle, but only because he was about to do something so amazing that they could never have imagined. They never would have guessed. They never would have chosen this path. Look at verse 4 of 14, chapter 14. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says. 
and he will pursue them and I will get glory. God is telling them it is not going to be easy. Yes, there will be frightful moments, but I am going to be in charge of this situation. I'm going to get glory in this and ultimately the world will know that I am the Lord. So they follow. But why not continue to trust? This is, see, this is a recurring theme in Exodus so far. God is orchestrating events to take place for his glory and for the good of his people. That's how our God operates. It's a beautiful thing that he can orchestrate the events of human history so that he gets glory, people hear his name, and we benefit from the, ultimately the salvation we have in Christ. That's the ultimate benefit. That's the good we receive. Eternity with God. But the Lord is always working out things around us and we can't see behind the scenes. Israel, on the other hand, had God right in front of them and they still didn't trust that this was a good situation for them to enter into. In Romans 8, 28, we see this great promise in the New Testament and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But you see, sometimes we're like the Israelites. What do we do? We look up. We see an army, so to speak, right? We see an army of a problem bearing down on us on one side. Perhaps we look to our right and we see a great sea that cannot be crossed. We feel like we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. We don't know where to turn. We don't know who to talk to. We don't know what to do. Of course we're afraid in those moments. Who wouldn't be? Yes. But after that initial fear, when we look up, when you look up, and you see that a problem in your life has come right before you and you don't know what next step to take. Where should your mind go in that moment when you don't know what to think, when you don't know what to do? Some of you are going through that right now. It could be a physical issue that you're going through. And you've been told some bad news and you don't know what to think, you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do. Perhaps it's a relational issue. There's a family member that, sh that doesn't love the Lord and you've been praying that they would come to know Christ for years and you don't know what to say. You don't know what to think. The holidays are coming up. You're going to be around your family and you don't know. What, you don't know. It's almost like a burden to be around them because you know that they don't want to love the Lord like you do and you don't know how to witness to them. You don't know how to share the gospel with them. After this fear, whatever it may be, relational, natural, whatever fear that presents itself to you, when you look up, you see this trial, you see this challenge, where should your mind go? It should go to the truth of God's word that he will not bring you to a certain place and then leave you hanging. He will not take you somewhere and not give you the grace to get through it. God has a purpose. He has intentionality in everything he does. And it is always good for you. Even though it may not feel that way. There's a beautiful promise in Philippians 1.6. The Apostle Paul says, and I am sure of this. All right, I'm not, I'm not like kind of sure. Like, is it going to rain today? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, no, I'm sure. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you is just going to leave you hanging and say, good luck, bud. No, that's not what it says. He who began a good work in you is going to finish it. 
He's going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, when Christ returns or you die and you stand before him on that final judgment day, when you're standing before your creator, there will be a safety and reassurance in your heart knowing that there is a God who is looking out for you all along. And through every single trial that he led you to, there was a purpose in it, even though you couldn't always see it. Because he was all along working and transforming who you were to be more like him. And you'll be so grateful. We'll be so thankful for his constant leading and his intentionality and purpose. We must trust God's purposes even if we don't know what they are. We trust that he is trustworthy. He's already proven that to us by sending his son to die for us. Number two, we must Choose faith over fear by resting in God's presence as we move forward in obedience. Rest in God's presence as you move in obedience. Now, how can you rest and move at the same time? It's kind of like a trick question, right? Uh, uh, (laughs) On an airplane, maybe. I don't know, right? You can rest, maybe not so much in coach, right? But you rest, right? I've never flown flown first class, so I don't know any different. We rest as we move, right? Someone else is doing the work, while you can actually enjoy the rest. So how gracious of God, how gracious of God to be present with his people and to show them in such a visible way the pillar of cloud and fire. I mean, really, like think about that, right? I mean, they should have no excuse. They should have no excuse, right? If we all walked out of here today and there was a pillar of fire outside and it was God saying, follow me, I think we'd all say, yes, let's go. But for some reason, Israel in their thick-headed skulls couldn't get to that point. They could not look and see God and follow him. But look what Moses said, or look what the Lord said to Moses in chapter 14, verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? What's all this, what's all this complaining about? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. I'm with them. Rest in my presence and move God himself tells them to be quiet and move, to go forward in faith. Hey, you know what? Sometimes the best thing for us to do is just be quiet. It's so easy to complain, isn't it? I mean, we complain about little petty things, you know? Well, I thought I asked for medium steak. This has too much pink in it, right? Or does it have enough pink in it? Right? What is medium steak, by the way? I mean, how do you, where's the, who's, who's, sta- who's standard of that is that? You know, I always wonder when I go to a restaurant, like, is it too much pink? Is it not enough pink? It's just an interesting question that ponders my soul. Anyways, stop complaining about every little problem, right? Every little petty, petty thing that comes into your life. Stop voicing your worries over every little matter. You know what we do? We exaggerate the problems, don't we? We exaggerate every little thing that comes into our life. We act like it's the end of the world. A lot of us, myself included, will jump to conclusions. Oh, this is how this is going to turn out. Oh, it's just going to be the worst, you know? That's what you think, right? But what do we do instead? We rest in a God whose presence is with us. He has already led us to this point. Maybe he wants to lead you through that. Get into God's word, rest in his presence, and move forward in obedience instead of cowering down in fear. Often we just want God to give us an easy life, to take every single one of our problems away. 
So we become stagnant in our spiritual life because we're too focused on ourselves, on our own problems, wishing that we had an easy life. And what a trick. What a trick that Satan and our own sinful flesh will play on us to get you constantly just thinking about yourself so that you never actually move forward in obedience to what God is leading you to and through. But look at verse 16 of chapter 14 again. God said, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide it, right? And the people of Israel, what are they going to do? They're going to go through it. Did you see that? Not around it. God didn't take them around the problem. God did not even remove the problem. They went right through it. Through a sea. I mean, think about that for a moment. Doesn't that sound impossible? We would never choose to go through our problems. But with God, all things are possible. We have the same promise today in an even more remarkable way. We have the assurance of God's presence. Do you know how? Look at Matthew 28. This is a part of the Great Commission. Jesus told all his followers to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And you know what he promised? He said at the end there, I am with you always. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to tell you to do something and then not equip you to do it. God says, no, I'm in the fight with you. In fact, I will do the fighting for you. You just rest in my presence and you move and step forward in faith and obedience. Jesus promised in John chapter 14 that he would send a helper, the Holy Spirit, to live in his people. Now, this is a game changer. You see, the people of Israel had the fire and the cloud representing right, God manifesting his presence before them and leading them in that physical, tangible way. But you know what we have? Something even better. I said earlier, if we walked out and saw a pillar of fire, how great would that be? Guess what? I'll one-up that. You've got something much better. You've got the Holy Spirit of God living in you. You have the Holy Spirit of God living inside your soul. When you trust Jesus, when you turn from your sin and trust Christ to be your Savior, He gifts you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit becomes a part of, He comes and lives in you, and He becomes such a part of your life because He guides you and He leads you through the Word of God. It's an amazing thing that we have. We have the Lord's presence. We can rest in Him. We have that guarantee, the same one the Israelites had, of God's guidance and protection. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God, the Bible, to enlighten us to God's truth and teaches us how to apply it to our lives. So God's protection and His provision are always with you. Again, just like the story shows, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have trouble. That, means you're not, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have hurt or physical or emotional pain. But what it does mean is that God will protect your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus by His Spirit as we go through those trials. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we have a deep trust in the Lord's presence and power in our lives, then we can obey Him quickly and we can move forward into the trial. If you're struggling financially and you don't know what that next step of faithfulness and obedience looks like in your life as you try to steward the money that God's given you, you can move forward in faith and obedience according to His Word and not cower back in fear. Maybe that means being generous 
Maybe that means giving to the church, giving to a mission organization, supporting a missionary overseas, helping someone who needs help, maybe your own neighbor. Perhaps you have this problem and and, and you want to share the gospel with others. You have neighbors who are lost and they don't know Jesus. But the trial is kind of interesting. It's just that you don't want to get out of your comfort zone. You don't want to talk to them about the Lord. You don't want to even try to get to know them because you're scared of entering into their messy lives and you don't have time for that. You don't have one more thing you can put on your calendar. Some of us worship our calendar. Some of us worship just being busy. And so our trial may just be the fact that we can't get over ourselves and all the things the world has to offer. And we're scared to really let loose of our grip on the world and move forward in obedience and rest in God's presence because we're too concerned with controlling our own lives in all those little ways. It could be almost any situation in your life. God is calling us to rest in His presence as He guides us. And so we can move forward in any situation, no matter how scary or gloomy or tricky or challenging or frustrating it may be, we can move forward in obedience. Number three, and lastly, I think we see here in this story that we should marvel at God's performance. Marvel at God's performance. Maybe one reason we become so stricken with fear in a trial is because we are solely depending on our own strength and power to perform and get us out of it. We just want to get out of it ourselves, and we think we can. In Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, did you see what Moses said? Moses is the one person having faith in this story. He's the one person who's trusting that God led them to the issue, to the problem, and that he's going to lead them through the problem. What did he say? Fear not. Stand firm and see what? See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. He says the Lord will fight for you. We must keep our eyes fixed on the Savior more than the situation. And more than our own performance and our own abilities to crawl out of the situation. God's work is always better than our best work. Author Tim Chester says, when we try to take control of our world or of our eternal future, we're in effect saying, God's not doing a good job, so I'm going to step in. The result, he says, is over busyness, stress, and unwise decisions because it turns out that we're not very good at doing God's job for him. Amen? Yeah, I'm not. Boy, isn't that tempting, though, to try to rely on our own performance? We want to win the fight on our own effort because we're prideful people. It makes us feel good about ourselves. When you're faced with a challenge in your life, you want to go through it sometimes on your own effort, right? Because you want to prove to people that you do have what it takes. Wow, look, did you see how he handled that? He is amazing. And we want people to say those kinds of things about us. We want the attention to be on ourselves. I just wonder if there were some Israelites standing there that day that thought, oh yeah, let's fight. 
But in their hearts and in their minds, it was a prideful issue. They wanted to prove to the Egyptians and to everyone around them that they had what it took to get through this dilemma on their own. Our best performance on our best day is nothing but filthy rags. We have nothing to offer an all-powerful, all-holy God Yet he chooses to use us. You see, since we have nothing to offer, that's why we need a substitute before a holy God, someone to work for us on our behalf. Tim Chester again, he says, again and again in the Bible story, water has represented judgment. Now Jesus is immersed in water in the New Testament. This is what Jesus stepped into at the cross. Jesus plunged into the chaos of the waters of judgment, so to speak, so that we can walk through on dry ground. That's what happened on the cross. You see, as the Israelites were trapped with no way out, powerless to win the battle, before before we knew Christ as our Savior, we were trapped in our sin with no way out, helpless and hopeless to overcome its power. Satan had us right where he wanted us, but because Jesus stepped in because he conquered all evil, fear, and death by putting himself into our greatest trial, into the depths of fear and death in our place. Because Jesus was consumed by the judgment of God for us, we get to walk out on dry ground. You can pass through the waters of God's judgment unscathed with a new life heading towards a new heavenly home. You see, when we marvel at what Christ has done for us, the fact that he lived the life that you and I couldn't live, the fact that he died the death that we should have died as a penalty for our rebellion against our creator, Jesus fought the fight for you. The ultimate fight. And there's nothing we can do to repay or to pay that off. You you can't work and earn that. It's a fight you can't fight. Jesus fought for you. You see, that's why we can choose faith over fear in any circumstance. What's challenging you today? What problem has come up has come up over the horizon of your life and you look up at it. You've looked up at it recently, just like the Israelites looked up and you just see an army. You see an army on one side. You see a sea that's uncrossable on the other. What has come into your life that you look at right now and say, I don't know how we're going to get through that. I encourage you to put your hope in the one who fights your battles for you. In chapter 14, verse 31, did you notice the change of attitude? When the people marveled at God's salvation, at God fighting for them, when they saw it happen, what, did, what, what happened in their hearts? It says the people feared the Lord. You see, it's a different kind of fear. They went from fearing 
the situation, fearing man, fearing the problem, to fearing the Lord. That word means not like a spooky kind of Halloween fear. It's a reverent awe. It's a worshipful state of mind, positioned and postured toward the Lord. See, we can move to that different kind of fear, a healthy one, one that is so aware of God's presence in our lives, of his constant love and care, that we can begin to even see our trials as a blessing. And that sounds weird to the rest of the world. See a trial ultimately in God's sovereignty as a blessing? But look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It may take that leading by God through tough times for you to be truly able to recognize and find that rest and that refuge in the Lord. That may, that may be what it takes. If you've been relying on your own strength for so long, if your pride has swelled inside of you to the point where all of your decisions and your day-to-day -day life is all about impressing other people and making them believe in you, if that is your daily motivation for living, then yes, maybe God will lead you to a trial to produce this kind of steadfastness that only a trial could bring, but it is not harsh of him. It is loving of him because what is he doing? He's not just bringing you to it. He's going to lead you through it. He's going to fight for you, and he's going to let you come out on the other side stronger, more joyful with a steadfastness that the world cannot grasp. So that you can say with James, I count it all as joy. Maybe that's what it takes for us to know and feel the presence of God in our lives, his tender and fatherly care. Because when you know God loves you, when you sit in the quietness of your home with a cup of coffee, and your Bible opened up. When you sit and you just be still and know that He is God, you stop complaining, you stop talking, and you rest. And you listen to His Word. Do you have moments like that? Do you know how valuable that is to your daily life? To just sit, to be quiet, to be still, to rest. When you know that God is with you and he loves you in those moments, there is nothing sweeter. It's in those moments of life that all the other circumstances that, that bother us and keep us up at night and give us anxiety and fear, but it's in those sweet moments of fellowship with the Lord that we know 
that he loves us. And we know that his presence is with us. And we know he's leading us through whatever it may be. Are you having those moments with the Lord? Are you creating time and space for those moments? Boy, we need that. You know, when you know and appreciate God's love in that way, in those quiet moments, you may just burst out into song. Don't worry, I'm not about to sing as an example. But you know what? That's what the Israelites did next. After they watched the Lord fight for them and they finally learned to rest in his care, they burst out into song. They start singing and praising God with amazing joy and gratefulness. Look at this, Exodus 15, verses 1 through 3. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God. And I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. That's the kind of confidence that comes after God has brought you to a trial, led you through the trial, and has taught you deep in your heart as nothing or no one else in this world can to rely on a strength that is greater than your own, much, much greater, the strength, the work, the fight of Jesus Christ himself. Only the gospel of Jesus can lead you to burst out in grateful songs of praise after the quiet, still moments of rest. We need both of those things in our lives. So let me ask you as we wrap up today, where do you need to believe that the Lord is fighting for you? Where are you struggling to have faith right now in your life? What is causing the fear? I just think we need to focus. I know there were three points in this sermon, but I'm telling you, it really boils down to resting and being still and resting in his presence and letting the Lord teach and mold your heart and then bursting out in praise. And I don't mean that you have to actually sing. You can. You can, sure, if you want to. But you know what? Just start thanking God. Verbally pray out loud and say, Lord, thank you. I don't understand why you've brought me to this trial. And I don't understand how you're even going to get me through it. But I know that here in this quiet moment, as I listen and read your word, I feel your presence in my heart. And I trust you, God. The Lord loves to hear his children tell him how much they love him and trust him. I love when my kids are so happy to see me when I get home from work. I love when they tell me that they love me, right? We all love that. If you're a parent, you know that feeling. Don't you think God feels the same way? He's a compassionate God. He's a tender, loving Father. And He wants to hear you. He wants to hear you tell Him how much you love Him and trust Him. Do that. Spend time with Him in that way. Stop complaining so much to Him. And start resting in joyful praise.